Cool. Hi, everybody. This is Agitator episode 20. We are talking about the Crows Zero trilogy, the first two being directed by the the spirit animal of this podcast, Takashi Ike, and the third being directed by Toshiata Toyota, who did Porno Star. If you listen to episode 13, I want to say, was Porno yeah, Star? Yeah, yeah, 13. Uh, so we thought that for our 20th episode, by the way, 20 means that we have survived. We're now in the top uh, 0.01% of podcasts that make it past 20 episodes. So Too legit to quit. We're real boys. We're real boys. Um, we've thought it would be good to actually uh, just take, take in the whole trilogy uh, because it's got these two different directors and talk about the films themselves, but also uh, it's a great opportunity to examine the differences in how these two directors approach the same material, essentially, because all three Crow Zero's movies follow the same structure, almost almost exactly, with minor alterations. So, what's up with you, Kelby? Let's do a little banter. Where, where are you? What are you doing? Well, I'm going to pick up the kid from my folks. They live about four hours away. I don't know if I've ever mentioned any family stuff on the podcast, but Erica and I are like lone wolves and cub where we live. We got Erica's dad nearby, so he comes over fairly frequently to hang out and shit. But my family, they're all over the map. And uh, we went up for Thanksgiving and... What? I'm on the... I'm on the phone. It's like this cop creeping by. Like, I don't know, is it illegal to sit in my car and talk on the phone? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know which town I'm in right now. That might be a... That might be one of those weird laws. It's like, no, you, you can't just... You can't just loiter in your vehicle and talk on the phone. But we learned from the Grant episode that, uh... <laughs> I, I can't record this shit while driving. <laughs> just be this ethereal voice yeah. and the like, sort of screaming from the uh, like like in Disco Elysium when he has that like uh, that creepy ass brain yeah voice talking the, the to the lizard him. brain yeah yeah the lizard brain now uh, so yeah my my mom has been watching Rowan. Uh, for the week, so I'm on my way to pick him up. That's good. You had, did you yeah. have a lot of sex? Yeah. Oh yeah. We had we had a lot of sex, but that never stops us. You know, the kid just has to cover his ears. He's got a lot of stuffed animals, so you know he just he sleeps with those <laughs> and buries his head in the between his little stuffed mouse from right. if you give a mouse a cookie and his and his little uh, teddy bear. Right on. Yeah, that was me growing up. My parents. Uh, I would just hear everything, and I would kind of cover, like you said, just cover my head with a pillow. I was like, I wasn't hiding from monsters. I was hiding from my my mother screaming from the downstairs. <laughs> oh, no, there was one time, uh, you know, parents are like, shut the door. But if you fast forward a little bit to my teenage years, my dad went through something of a midlife crisis he got nipple rings and tattoos and That's what's i came home from school one day and 
I usually like I lived upstairs and my, my parents room was downstairs and I was like I'm gonna I just had to go piss so I was gonna piss in like their bathroom and I didn't know my dad was home and I walked in and this fool had his leg up like Captain Morgan on the sink and he was just shaving his balls and <laughs> we both <laughs> we both screamed we both screamed and <laughs> I would just never forget that because my dad's like my dad's like six one six two something like this is you know pretty tall dude trying to trying to get his balls that's when you realize that your parents are people and they just do people shit you know what's hilarious about that is that my dad at that point would have been uh so i was like 12 so yeah my dad would have been younger than i am now my dad would have been like 29 something like that that's crazy that's crazy to think yeah i've passed a lot because i moved out of uh, I moved away from home early. Um, I left when I was 17. And my dad has always worked all over the place. So, like, a lot of my big memories of my dad are from a young age. And he was a young dad. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of my memories, like, of growing up with him, like, being in the same house as him, uh, I- I've surpassed the age that he was. Yeah, that's good. It's that's weird. It's weird to think about, yeah. And with all the challenges that fatherhood presents to me as a 35-year-old man, uh, I can only imagine, you know, at this point in my life, my dad was 18. Dude, I would have fucked that up, too, if I was a kid. I have a lot of sympathy for my dad. I used to be resentful, and then I was, I thought, you know, my entire 20s was a shit show of alcoholism and wild behavior and drugs and shit like that i was like well my dad was just in the military and had a kid so he did okay he considering the circumstances he did okay my dad and i have had a lot of those heart to hearts where it's like because i've basically turned into the same person as him to different extents Mm mm-hmm I mean, I've been stubborn to turn out opposite in a lot of ways, but he was he was a young dad uh, trying to make it, doing his own thing. So, like, mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. the same boat I'm in, almost, and it's, like, it's hard sometimes. It's hard, yeah. There's hard days and there's good... Like, yesterday with Gus was a... Uh, I don't know. I don't know if hard day is really the right word because, you know, he's a baby, so he can't walk... He can't talk. He can't really get into shit. And he's also older than the newborn phase of just screaming all the time for no reason. But he was just, you know, just being needy yesterday. And I have a rule in the house, which is that when I'm at home, excuse me, when I'm at home by myself and I'm taking care of him, I just don't do anything. I just clear my calendar. Nothing's getting done. But yesterday there were three or four things that I just I had to get done. I had to, you know, get this power of attorney thing figured out so that I can get my check for my total car and just little dumb administrative shit. And he wanted daddy's attention all day. And I was just like, oh! So I got frustrated. But, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a bitch move to complain about a baby or even like a toddler. You know what I mean? It's like kind of in my idealized mind, you just suck that shit up and just do it. So I'm working towards that. 
that's why I'm glad that we have each other to call and be like, I'm finna drop kick this motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you just hear it and you're like, mm-hmm. wow, I'm really mad at a two year old or an eight month old. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, yeah, I've gotten mad at Gus. And it was really funny because, like, yesterday I was so frustrated that I put, I like, put him in his walker and I went into the bathroom and I was, like, saying every swear and slur under my breath and, like, punching the air. You know what I mean? Just, just like, thro- throwing, I was throwing a temper tantrum, basically. <laughs> and while I was in the middle of that, he had, like, rolled over and he was looking at me from the doorway. And so I stopped and I looked at him. And he just, like, started laughing. And I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) He's like, bro, you a bitch. (laughs) You really this mad about a baby? He's like, do I need to hold you? But (laughs) He's like, bro, I'm over here. I I can't even feed myself. And you're crying about, you know, well, because you can't get your little paperwork done. So that was a, at that point, I... You know, everything sort of melted away, and I was like, okay, you're right, kiddo. It is funny. Because, like, this is where stoicism is really powerful, and there's a lot of criticisms about stoicism, namely that all the major thinkers and practitioners of it were rich motherfuckers. Like, Seneca was one of the richest people um, at the time. He was Caligula's... He Didn't he ra- He raised Caligula, I think? which was his big his so. big fuck up. Um, and Marcus Aurelius was obviously the emperor. Or, uh, yeah. So, yeah. you know, they'd be writing and they're like, don't get mad about things. And it's like, bro, if somebody makes you mad, you can just feed them to a lion. So I'm not really, you know, if you fail at your stoicism for the day, you, you can toss, uh, toss a few Christians in a pit and just be good with it. Um, yeah, and Marcus Aurelius would. But it's crazy. Those people—they're not wrong. They're not wrong. That's like the I've thing. read Seneca, yeah. I've read Marcus. Marcus Aurelius wrote some of the greatest shit on just how to be a man, mm-hmm. and it's like—I mean, I—I I get this is coming from a dude who I would have major problems with, mm-hmm. but like, and like we do not see eye to eye, but I don't know. Some ideas are universal. They are, and the thing is, is that people. Um, like to complain about this shit and they say oh easy easy for you to say right and they're not wrong necessarily but the thing about life in general is that nothing that is easy is worth it that's um you know my second book was called low down death right easy which is the name of a doc reed song but that whole book is about characters who in one way or another make easy decisions that fuck up their lives, right? There's a hard way and there's an easy way. And they choose the easy way, and that's when they get fucked up. And so, you know, when you see people who are depressed and then they receive the advice to go outside and ride their bike or touch grass, and they say, I I, I can't because of X, Y, Z. It's like, yeah, man, Uh I get it. It's hard. And you know what? Your subjective experience might make that even harder than it is for me. So maybe it is easy for me to say, but that doesn't change the fact that all those guerrilla mindset, Ryan Holiday, <laughs> Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, bros, 
who work in tech, they're still not wrong. It is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't change that it's true. Mm-hmm. Like, um, uh, the homie Marcus would be reading super rich people all the time. Mm-hmm. And I often would be like, like, he'd bring up different points. And I'd be like, I'd be the one saying, like, I mean, sure, easy for them. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I mean, bro, who you want to listen to? Like, people in the same boat as you or some rich motherfuckers? Mm-hmm. He's like, I want to see what these rich motherfuckers think. Yeah, that's exactly the the mindset that like one of my best buddies uh he grew up exactly the same way as me his parents were in the military uh and now he has sort of grown his wealth while i was doing drugs and writing uh books he was getting good jobs and acquiring property so now he's this like massive landlord he has like 30 properties and uh i just really look up to him because he had that he always has that mindset and we talk once or twice a week because he's a dad also. And when I, when I get done talking to him, I'm really refreshed because I, at a certain point, I was coming to him with these complaints, these things that I wanted to hash out in my mind. And he kept bringing it back to the, the episode of The Wire where Marlo Stanfield steals a, a sucker from the gas station and the uh-huh. security guard tries to stop him and the security guard says hey man what what are you doing like i know who you are you can see who i am this is just my job i'm just trying to live day to day and you know you're pushing me you're testing me by doing this petty crime and the famous line is marlo says you want it to be one way but it's the other way and that's what Shermaine would always or does always put into my head is like you can cry about all this shit and you can, you know, listen to, I don't know, podcasts like, I don't want to single anything out, but, you know, the kind of Chapo Trap House brand of Marxist critique, which is basically just like, nothing's fair, so we should, you know, punish other people and put in some kind of uh, hyper-centralized authoritarian force to make everything equal. You could You could go that way. Or you can just accept that nothing is really fair and what makes a person is entirely based on their ability to overcome those things you know yeah a hundred percent um moving so much further away from uh socialism the older i get and the harder i work at things yeah right because we're beginning to see the peak at what it might look like with covid restrictions I don't know if uh, I haven't done any deep dives into the Green New Deal, but I've heard summaries, and the things that you hear about them are scary. You 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 suddenly realize you don't. It's like wait, I don't want this. This is not what I had in mind. <laughs> when Texas froze over, that was one of my uh, my big steps away from all that shit too. Mm. I mean, I was already. I was never like. Uh, yeah, the government will take care of shit. We need stricter enforcement on certain things. Like, But, you know, the idea of fiscal equality and shit like that was always... I was like, I mean, yeah, let's get everybody on a fair playing ground or whatever. But, I don't know. That seems like such a naive middle-class pipe dream. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. coming from... When I'm honest about it, like, I've had to struggle through shit... And I didn't come up wealthy or even middle class. And I want to keep going. I don't want anybody to, like, 
control what I can do. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, my whole shit was based around this fundamental idea of if people break their leg and have to go to the hospital, like somebody shouldn't go bankrupt because of that. But I mean, man, that's a very specific problem. That I don't even know the answer to. I really don't even know how to how to fix that. But I mean, from that and then immigration, because I like Mexicans, I've always wanted, you know, living on the border of El Paso. Uh, I got involved in a lot of, you know, letting letting people in because you see the good people who sneak over the border, right? Um, and then that all changed because I started kind of... You know what changed my mind on immigration? I, we are going to get back to Crow Zero, I promise. This banter section was only supposed to be like five minutes, but me, me, me and Kelby <laughs> get to talking. But you know what changed my ideas on immigration was, uh, you know, Fiverr, the the website where you can get book covers and shit for five bucks oh yeah yeah. so cody was trying to do edits on fiverr and he was you know he kept getting priced out on it and i went to the website and i realized that the reason why fiverr is so tough for you know people in america to make a living at is because you have to do everything for five bucks but you know who will do something for five dollars some motherfucker in the philippines right so all of us all of a sudden you know some dude who can crap out five shitty book covers a day for five dollars each gets 20 bucks i mean that's beats going to work in a factory in you know malaysia or some shit so that (laughs) that put the whole immigration thing into context for me it's like oh right yeah if you let people in who will do things cheaper it benefits a very small percentage of employers and even though you know a lot of people don't want to admit it that whole like took our job kind of thing i mean it's it's legit dude (laughs) it's kind of true to an extent it's i've always only i've seen it the most in the in the construction world because uh you know living in gulf texas and most of uh I'd say 65% of people I work alongside on different jobs are illegal immigrants. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I guess it depends on what field you're Mm -hmm. in. Because a lot of people in the uh, construction world, like, say, racist white people, for example, Mm -hmm. they take the whole, they're going to take your job thing. And I'm like, show me a border crosser who can build a cabinet better than I can. Mm -hmm. And... I'll either try to work with him or we'll be competition. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what do you want? Do you want quality or cheap? Yeah. And and there's so much work around here that like, I don't know. I've never had a problem, yeah. but I also have a hustler mindset. And, I like uh, that. No, I like that better. Yeah, you're kind of peeling me in the other direction now too. Because you're right. I mean, that is true. At the end of the day, it's, it's kind like of back just, to the baby thing. It's like, just, it's just like do, what are you bitching yeah, about? Yeah, just do better, basically. You know, get a get a unique skill. Because what you're saying with the cabinetry um, is that you can do something that other people can't. So yes, if you are unskilled and you know you're a worker ant who puts up frames for I don't I don't even know. I'm way out of my depth talking about this shit. But you know, like if you're unskilled, then yeah, you're going to be subject to this labor pool that might not get paid that great because to them seven bucks an hour is perfectly fine living 20 people to a you know to an apartment or something and sending that money back home 
And bro, the way you do it is you make friends with them, the ones who actually work. Because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, sure, there's a lot of people who just come in and try to get, you know, money and they don't ever communicate. They don't care about actually showing up to the job or whatever. But the ones who hustle, like, make friends with them mm-hmm. and the shit you can't do, like, say, I'm not a great painter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learn mostly from immigrants, like, as I go, like, I try to get better and better at mm-hmm. that. But, uh, there will be something I'll recommend that I'll be like, hey, I've got this thing going on and I don't want to paint it. Like, I'll give you the job mm-hmm. and you can tell the people how much you want for it. And then they work so fucking much that they'll be like, oh, bet. Mm-hmm. And then they'll call you and be like, you know, they'll call me and be like, hey, these people want a vanity. And I'm like, shit, cool. Yeah. I, I didn't I didn't know these people. They wouldn't have known That's me. That's beautiful. What you're talking about is an ecosystem, right, of responsibility between different people work you know and this is the thing too is that thinking about it a lot of people who complain about the immigration shit again are like keyboard warriors who it's all an abstraction to them and you know you get into weird stuff about like how immigrants are rapists and shit and that's where i get off the boat because it's like dude everybody's everybody has rapists <laughs> you know what i mean like it's, it's not exclusive to one particular group but I, what i will say is that as far as the fiber thing goes if you're somebody who's in my position for example uh freelance editing i mean i still get work so i don't really have anything to complain about but i could see how somebody who is trying to survive in the neoliberal hell gig economy uh could be undercut by people from india the Philippines, shit like that. While at the same time, I mean, people like Matthew Rivera and uh, their ilk, they get paid for their covers because because yeah, they're fucking people good. People want those covers. Yeah. yeah. So. But, yeah. yeah, now I think we should have like internet borders to some extent because I hate calling to try and get somebody to mow my lawn or something mm-hmm. and they send me to some some person in india Mm -hmm. i'm like no i need somebody down the road who has a mower Mm -hmm. who can take care of this shit because i'm allergic to poison ivy Mm -hmm. and i can't i can't take care of my own Mm -hmm. yard so Mm -hmm. like damn you don't know anything about this situation you're in india right exactly yeah there's you know man this actually turned out to be a pretty good conversation though because this is what i'm trying to you see you see how we just had a discussion and came to like reasonable conclusions that's it's very rare these days very rare these days it's what we do on the agitator podcast like you said last episode you're a thinker i'm a thinker we do a lot of pondering and we end up solving problems like immigration so you know boom it's solved we fixed crow zero crow zero the the trilogy how do you want to divide this up i mean honestly dude here's what i'll say each movie goes like this there's a high school. It's called Suzeron. And you know it's called Suzeron because you're going to hear it about a hundred times each each, each movie. <laughs> Suzeron! Suzeron! You're going to hear it about a hundred times each movie. And the idea is that this... You kind of live in this cartoon world in these movies, especially in the first one. The first one is is this incredible mismatch of... Or mixmatch or whatever, however you want to call it, of slapstick cartoon and kind of realistic brawl movie 
but they they go to this high school where classes never take place. Uh, the teachers don't do anything. The walls are covered in graffiti. Uh, the courtyard has a big pile of chairs in it for some reason. The kids hang out on the roof and smoke cigarettes and drink beer all day. And these competing gangs within the high school basically fight each other for dominance of of suzerain right so the first movie is about an infight between two groups vying for domination of the school the second movie it finds them uniting to fight another house that wants to take down the school and then the third movie scraps 80 percent of all those characters and starts over and the third one to me is very interesting that's that's where it gets kind of strange to me because it's one of the most you know how we talk on this podcast a lot about how we like tonal shifts and uh, digressions this is one of the most digressing and unfocused movies i've ever seen in my life crows explode the third yeah um it's very uh shakespearean mm -hmm. Hmm. in what way like the way that it's sort of because I thought the same thing I was like this movie's all over the place and then near the end I was like no this is a Shakespeare play mm. like you have the sun the way all the characters eventually just fucking clash into each other from past histories because mm -hmm. uh, the returning characters are Ken mm -hmm. who since the first he's basically a a, a coward he dropped out of suzerain um even though he idolized like he worships that school he thinks it's the best thing he thinks it's where men are made and everything uh he didn't have what it took to survive it and he sort of is a a pussyfoot between yakuza gangs but he's extremely loyal to who he considers his friends and uh long story short to get to the third one he ends up at an auto place working along working for uh one of the kids from the first two movies who's grown up and you know sort of owns this auto shop and or works at this auto shop that this chick owns and uh ken was the surrogate father of one of the main kids in the third movie who first pops up there and he's like the uh sort of like genji in the first movie he's the heir to this yakuza group but it's not exactly the same because he's not following in his father's footsteps his father died at a young age so the current boss is kind of like who doesn't have children it's like hey you're gonna take over and he's a little more he's a lot more doe-eyed than like genji from the first one and ken was like his surrogate father and then you've got like this kid who gets out of juvie for setting someone on fire who is forced to drop out of school works as a janitor slash dirty job doer of this same yakuza group leads a biker gang and starts a bunch of shit with the like uh the Cizeron. and you, you've just got all these different factions these different classes these different like you've got the whole like foster kid story these fatherless children um coming up in this violent world and like meeting like at, at the center of a star like they're all over the place and then they all meet at the center of uh this star gram basically mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it, it it is unfocused, and then all comes to like this this big point, and just the the like the the multiple characters and the warring families and all that shit just made me think of like uh, Shakespeare or something. Especially when you take the whole thing as one giant movie, the way that you and I did, because I, I watched all these movies yesterday, and today I actually finished Crows Explode about 30 minutes before I called you um, right down to the wire but the so with the first movie so we can start there and the first movie has Mike fingerprints all over it um, mm-hmm. so it starts off and you know you're in this school and the teachers are trying to get control for a second and then they just kind of give up because everything descends into a brawl and you have a uh, Two characters, Serizawa and Genji, who are... Serizawa is sort of the favorite to rule the school, so to speak. And the school, funny enough, has never been ruled. Uh, Nobody's ever completely taken over the school. Because there is a character named Rindaman who wears a hoodie. He's a total throwback to Asano, I think was his name, in uh, Porno Star. To, he, bas- yeah. he basically looks like the guy from Porno Star, which is funny because, you know, the director of Porno Star directs the third movie. But there's this enormous kind of autistic guy who just hangs out at the school, and he's the final boss to rule the school. And throughout all three movies, he's never defeated. So the funny part about all the Crow Zero movies is that you have all this infighting to see who becomes king and this one guy who doesn't want to be king essentially keeps that from ever happening, which is an interesting uh, metaphor, I think. There's, there should be Ren demands everywhere, people with no interest in power, but who just keep everyone in check, keep the, whole, keep the whole ecosystem moving. That's essentially how anarchy would work, ideally, is that you would have people working and struggling and attempting to do something, but there, there would be a fail-safe in place to ever keep it from coalescing into a hierarchy so yeah you will never have a king because this dude who doesn't give a fuck is going to beat your ass it's going to keep you from being the king right so these um every movie starts off with a a song at a club it's the same song and the first movie which i thought was hilarious starts off with this song from this pompadour uh band and then almost immediately goes into like an R&B song with this just insanely hot chick, right? It's like a Japanese TLC. Yeah, it's Japanese TLC. It's R&B. The subtitles even say like smooth R&B begins to play. And it's <laughs> and we can talk about the music a little bit later because it's, it's funny. But, you know, you have a lot of stuff in the first Crows movie that is completely slapstick. That, you know, Sarazawa has a bunch of underclassmen dress up as bowling pins and then uh, basically kicks this enormous, what looks like concrete ball at them and and sends them flying everywhere. Uh, There's a lot of this kind of cartoonish slapstick comedy in it that's mixed in with kind of this deadly, serious character drama, which is pretty much quintessentially... Miike. As we've said before on this podcast, Miike takes his movies one scene at a time. And occasionally, 
those scenes don't have to they don't have to match the tone of the rest of the movie at all he just kind of does what he wants yeah that is the most over-the-top thing i think that happens in all three movies and there's never you think jesus christ you can kick a thousand pound concrete sphere as if it's a soccer ball at a group of kids lined up like bowling pins and knock them all off the roof but you can't kick random man's ass yep exactly and you know what does it make sense absolutely because this is the yeah it works for the joke yeah exactly (laughs) yeah it's a joke right so one thing that i um wanted to touch on first was actually the different styles of the movie and i'm not sure if it has to do with the quality of the of the pirated movies that we got you watched them on youtube right and and yeah i sent you the the third movie um but the first movie is very it feels very uh home video it feels very kind of like shaky cam there's uh the fights in it i think are the i think they're the best in the first movie because it's this you know sort of up close and personal there's a final fight in the rain between all the two different factions and they're wearing the same uniforms so you can't really tell who is who but you begin to just kind of vibe with the you know this sound like a you know a bag full of broken glass being hit with a wet stake over and over again you know these these just enormous punch noises um because these movies and i can't remember which movie they set it in they say there's a difference between marsh is no part two but they say there's a difference between martial arts and fighting and so these are fighting movies they're not john wick where everything's a ballet and smooth it's it's all about the physicality of the characters punching each other that scene too is so perfect for what you're saying because it's when like this quiet somber like secret weapon type character from the Hausen clan mm-hmm. who challenges the suzerain in the second mm-hmm. movie he um he's like their hidden weapon or whatever they're always telling him hey we're going up against these guys don't hold back mm-hmm. so it's like damn this guy must be crazy mm-hmm. and he pull like you know he's all martial arts kung fu master whatever and he's sort of beating Sarazawa's ass and uh what's great about these movies too is because like and it speaks to like the teen angst of the of the film and of the characters anytime a character is mocked oh you just you just stepped over the line it's time to go because yeah it's time to go because he like karate kicks him into like a pile of chairs or whatever and he says something he just mocks his ability he says something like you you don't really live up to your reputation or whatever and Sarazawa just looks at him wild-eyed, and, is, and that's when he tells him, you know, there's a difference between martial arts and fighting. And then he just runs at him and beats the fuck out of him with, like, just no no artistic quality to it, just beats the shit out mm-hmm. of him with his mm-hmm. fists. Yeah, so if you go into this movie and you're expecting something like The Raid or John Wick, you'll be disappointed. But I see the fight choreography, especially, like I said, in the first movie, um, as being almost the pinnacle of this type of genre, right? The fight choreography seems to be really dependent on the actors who are doing the choreography. So the guy who played Sarazawa and the guy who played Genji, they were great at putting their whole bodies into their punches and getting punched. So you really kind of felt the action. 
one thing that I felt the third movie lacked was the the loner main character who's introduced. I didn't buy him as like a fighter. He's like really slow and he telegraphs everything. And I don't know if it's like the way that it's shot, but the third movie to me was lacking a bit of the physicality of the first two movies. The first one especially. Yeah. Yeah, the third one is beautiful and that is the um the cost of that beauty is losing that uh that sort of brutal physicality though when he zooms out when toyota zooms mm-hmm. out and has like a wangoro mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. sort of wild-eyed i thought he looked like jack black he just has this crazy facial energy and uh mm-hmm. when he goes ham on people when he's in rage yeah. mode those those are like the most physical parts of oh he's great one. did you notice what it said on his jacket i kept trying to read it because it said something in english yeah. but i, I never it said it. black hustlers out of control hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's some really funny english in this in the third movie especially there's a yakuza they get into a uh, altercation not really a fight at a bath and everybody's naked and this one yakuza walks up and across his stomach like where tupac had the thug life it says ass fort <laughs> and then the last band in the third movie they have their their banner behind them and the band yeah. the band name is old yeah. dick foggy <laughs> that's that's fucking great there's a um there's a band i've been listening to that's on the second movie soundtrack mm-hmm. and they're called aggressive dogs mm-hmm. And if you were an American band and you named yourself Aggressive Dogs, everyone would be like, these fucking douchebags. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, mm-hmm. not, I'm not listening to that clown shit. But they're fucking great. It's like Japanese Linkin Park meets uh, Lamb of God yeah. type yeah. music. It's like rough as fuck, but it has these electronic rap breakdowns. Yeah, the first movie has anime music, which in it like really sucks. It's choose you like while they're while they're fighting. The second movie has a has a pseudo new metal soundtrack, but I gotta say, Toyota's shoegaze makes an appearance in the third movie. So for me the third movie definitely had the best soundtrack. Just like it's just basically you can tell it's like a guy strumming these really dissonant chords and I I fuck with it. The same as Porno Star, right? I think he I, I would have to assume he worked with the same guy for every movie kind of the way Tsukamoto did until his collaborator for Tetsuo and Tokyo fit like all of his movies that guy uh the musician died so now he doesn't have that that guy anymore but when a when a filmmaker links up with a musician I think that's so important probably even more than linking up with a cinematographer director photographer like whatever actor it's the it's the music right that's the most important thing yeah yeah because cinematographers is uh i would as a cameraman like i i love uh visual art um like doing it like photography and videography if i were to make a movie i'd have to be my own cinematographer Mm -hmm. because and that's what most directors are you get a certain look from each director even if they have different camera people Mm. working for them Mm -hmm. because you know they're telling them where to point and shoot and get it framed this way and blah 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 Mm -hmm. so yeah no i agree like the cinematographer relationship that's who cares Mm -hmm. but you get a good get a good composer 
in your camp. There are cinematographers right now. There are movie people who are just seething right now. Don't you understand that who lenses a project is important? No, sorry. You know what? Get back to work. Yeah, we, yeah, we don't care. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. Go make. What are you doing listening to a podcast? You can't hear the director d- instructing you yeah. if you're listening to a podcast. Yeah, you should be out there making movies, dumbass. Um, <laughs> but so the way that the movies are shot obviously is different. Um, the first movie, as we said, had the home video feel. The second movie has what I call the big budget Miike look. There is a stark contrast between Crow Zero and I think Yakuza Like a Dragon was made around the same time. And just a few years later, Miike started getting the big, the big budgets to make these, right? And so you get like mm-hmm. Harakiri, you get uh, Shield of Straw. And you get this movie, and they're all in kind of the same visual mode, which to me isn't as interesting, right? It's a little bit cleaner, it's a little bit slower paced, but it's still noticeably him, right? Uh, but I was curious, like, which, what did you think about the visual styles of these three movies? So that was one of the main things I was comparing between mm-hmm. them. Um, and I completely agree that Crows and Crows 2 are super different even though they're both Mike and of course Toyota has a very up close and personal he's very intimate in the way he likes to frame things and a lot like Tsukamoto he seems obsessive over getting that perfect shot Mm, yeah um but I would say Tsukamoto goes crazy with those frenetic camera shakes and everything Mm -hmm. and Toyota is extremely concentrated and patient yeah Uh, patient yes it all feels um it it's beautiful the, i mean the third one in all toyota's movies that i've seen are just gorgeous but yeah crows 2 uh had that sort of see mike seems like someone who has a natural eye who doesn't give a fuck mm-hmm. so you're gonna get a whole lot of just scenes that work and occasionally a fucking great shot Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like just a perfectly composed and it's like and i think that's because he has that natural eye for it but just keeps going he's like all right scene wrap let's go to the Mm -hmm, next one mm -hmm. uh but yeah the second one there's not a lot that and this this could speak to like when an artist gets a big budget or the expectations behind a budget it's sort of my beef with music videos these days because you get a lot of rich kids whose parents invest in their like equipment and shit and they just go out and film these slick looking you know music videos and everything and everybody's like oh this shit looks great but it doesn't do anything for me there's no like it's sort of like cool you got all the money to do all the fancy shit but you forgot to like be interesting Mm -hmm. like you you forgot to to do something creative you just pointed the fancy camera and you know, shot the slick looking scene. And uh Mike is very workmanlike. So he is he does do that. He's like, we got the camera, here's the scene. Boom, shoot it, you got it, let's go to the next scene. Mm-hmm. So I think when he has a bigger budget in his hands, you get a little bit less interesting of a visual style. Mm-hmm. Just because it looks so much cleaner. And you have to work a little a little bit harder to get a good shot with say like shittier equipment or whatever right yeah you have to work to make it that's exactly right because if this if the floor of a shittier camera is so much lower 
like you said, you have to arrange things and make them, you know, make sure that the settings look really good. And in the second, there just wasn't as much going on in some of the shots. Like, I ain't gonna lie, before the final battle, there's a scene where the people from Hausen, which is the opposing school, they, they burn down a part of Suzerain. And Genji, our hero, is going through his hero's uh, journey point where he wants to just reject the whole thing and, you know, just whatever. I don't care if it burns. And I watched that shit on uh, 1.88 speed on my video player because I was just like, there's, there's just nothing going on here. That was the only point in the whole series that I did that with. But I knew that I wasn't going to get anything out of this particular you know, 15 or 20 minutes of film. So I just watched it in like 10, you know? Yeah, and that's also the scene where it's a great, um, like the whole movie, I love the movie. Mm -hmm. I loved all three of these movies. Mm -hmm. But uh, you're right, like there's, that's one of those instances where not everything is the content, like the style matters too. Mm -hmm. You're shooting a movie. And that scene is a good example of if you're teaching like content versus style, uh, and using the media that's at your disposal. Like, what are you working with? Are you writing a book? Are you composing a song? Are you making a movie? You have to be aware of what you're doing here, what kind of art you're making, mm-hmm. because the content isn't everything. And that content-wise, that's a great fucking scene, because mm-hmm. it also has uh, Tokyo, who is Sarazawa's uh, brother, who has this, like, uh, brain... What does he have, like an aneurysm? Yeah, he has, a, he has he an aneurysm, yeah. Yeah, and he had this surgery in the first movie that he conquered like a badass. Like, I love, they're wheeling him in the hospital, <clears throat> uh, and uh, he's on the gurney, and he stops the nurse, and he's like, I want to walk this. Because he only has like a 30% chance of success mm-hmm. uh, to even make it out of this surgery alive. And he's like, I want to walk this. And he gets up like a boxer and takes off his shirt and like just walks like a badass into the... Uh, surgery room Mm -hmm. and uh i just i just loved that and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning with the like battling through whatever situation you're put into like at at some point what makes a man what makes a human you know what makes you strong isn't your circumstance it's how you fucking deal with Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. and uh in the scene with the school burning tokyo comes up to uh genji and is calling him a coward and everything. And he's like, hit me. And he's like, if I hit you, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. Because you had this, you know, you're a soft skull. You had this brain surgery. And um, he's like, I want you to hit me. And uh, it, I don't know. It's just intense. It's an intense mm-hmm. scene. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, the whole point of, of that was just to say that it's watered down by nothing nothing really going on you had a fancy camera and you just shot the scene mm-hmm. and there's nothing really like interesting to look at yeah. one one thing that i noticed Mike does he does a lot of shot and then reverse shots so he'll put the camera on genji and then he'll put the camera on tokyo and then he'll put the camera on sarazawa and you know whatever character you're meant to look at is the character that's in the frame and uh toyota has this different style of putting every character in one shot and then having the scene play out with the camera not even moving, which I thought was an interesting change in pace from the other movies. Because it does start to feel uh, slower, although slow doesn't necessarily mean worse, um, because I would prefer a lot of the shots that he does 
rather than uh, the ones that we saw in two. So basically, like, if I were to rank these movies, I'd probably rank them one, three, two, um, which isn't to say that two is bad, uh, because you know, Mike at his like, I'd say that's mediocre. Mike still better than most filmmakers at their best. So no, no, uh, I'm not shitting on him. But anyway, uh, putting characters in a frame like that, I think is just an interesting way of, of, you know, kind of block, you have to block the scene, I think is what actors call it, where it's like what actors do and where they stand. Because, you know, if the camera's not moving, everybody's got to kind of be on point. And so in that bathhouse scene, for instance, they'll be talking and there's this great, man, there's just, there's some great shots in all three movies of this because I didn't look up where this takes place, but it's not, I don't think it's Tokyo. It's, it seems like more suburban Japan. Um, but there are just some great shots in this movie of like strip malls and and clutter, you know? Mm-hmm. Like there's great clutter in this movie. Genji's dad's house is just beautiful and just packed. I took a screenshot that I'll put up, um, but there's it's just packed with like statues and paintings and you know, everything feels kind of grimy. The Yakuza office in part one, uh, where that actor who's in every Miike movie, the guy from Visitor Q, he's like chilling and looking at a at a painting of a mountain, and there's like files stacked in these cabinets, and just it feels like, I don't know, like you feel like you're underground when you're watching that. But uh, as far as the blocking goes, uh, there's that scene in the... Um, in the bathhouse and it's just this great shot of this tiled wall you know like all these little tiny tiles and the characters are talking to each other you know one of them bumps his head and it's just sort of fun to look at and like watch two people talk to each other so i think toyota does that really well yeah i I started feeling a little gay whenever because i was watching that and i took like seven screenshots of them taking a bath together and i was like but I, I know exactly what you mean like it's just it's just so perfectly composed and just everything that's on screen like is arranged perfectly and i think the like a difference between um toyota and Mike and how they uh frame a shot is when they're leaving the bathhouse i know i know exactly how Mike would have shot that mm-hmm. because he shot so much of you know people running away or whatever He'd have been side by side with the characters, cut to this one, cut to that one, and now they've run away, linger on the people chasing them, kicking rocks or whatever, and boom, you're done. Mm -hmm. Toyota, like, films the exterior of the bathhouse. The characters start running out, covering their crotches because they're all naked, trying to run away from the Yakuza dudes beating them up. And, uh, they, and then it turns to face to frame the entire street uh you get the strip mall on either side and like you watch them all run bare ass like down the street and ken with his fucking like short ass with his knees bumping his chest the whole time Mm -hmm. like monkey running like (laughs) it's just like that was one of those like big uh scenes that just felt so different like it was in the hands of a different director yeah absolutely you know what's interesting i was thinking back on that scene because there are all these great shots of um let my dog out the endless struggle of trying to keep my son napping while my dog's claws click on the floor um (laughs) 
<laughs> but there's a great scene with that mob Yakuza boss that I mentioned where he's looking at his um, painting. And uh, like I said, there are all these great shots of like tight marketplace corridors and, you know, a lot of shops that are, you know, have that are rolled up. Um, really, like the vibes that I felt was when I was in Korea uh, and we would go to marketplaces and it's just, that's the feel, man. It's like, it's really tight and you'll be walking and it'll be a, a flea market with clothes and then you'll walk a little bit more and there's like, not quinceanera dresses, but like there's something similar to a quinceanera in Korea, I think for 13 year old girls. And so you'll like walk through and there's like a, a place where they're making dresses, right? And it's just literally uh, old women, Ajumas just, you know, working on fabrics. And then you'll go to another one and, you know, so, like, <laughs> you know, somebody's killing a squid and feeding it to people on paper plate you know it's the it's this tight chaotic atmosphere that it's really i think well articulated in every movie uh, there's like an oppressiveness to the to the architecture in everything um yeah but you know what's weird is that 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 yakuza mob boss he has a cough throughout that movie and i kept thinking i kept waiting for the punchline to what his cough was about and you never get it which is another Miikeism, you know, somewhere along the lines, they're like this dude coughs for some reason, and in movies you're trained to see a cough as like he's got cancer, right? It's it's always lung cancer. So I was waiting for him to be like, you know, when he uh, the mob boss, Crows One starts off with this mob boss uh, shooting Ken in the back, and you end up finding out that the reason why he shot Ken in the back is because Ken wouldn't kill Genji so that they could start a, a Yakuza war with Genji's father, who's the rival Yakuza boss. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, like, where was I going with that? Anyway, I just thought that that would resolve itself somehow. Uh, that he would, like, before he killed Ken, or thought that he, or pretended to kill Ken because he gives him a bulletproof jacket, <laughs> which I thought was, like, corny and awesome. Uh, I thought he was going to give a speech about, like, you know, I don't have much longer to live, but blah, blah, blah. And no, no, he just coughs. Yeah, and it's uh, it's one of those things that's lacking from the second one where it's just like, why this? Well, just because people have ticks, they have coughs, they, you know, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of shit going on in every single person. Yeah. So yeah. it doesn't matter. It's like that whole like Chekhov's gun rule doesn't really apply to everything, mm -hmm. even guns. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it doesn't have to apply to everything. There doesn't have to be a purpose besides just, well, why this? Well, because humans are multi-layered. Yeah. Like, yeah. Sometimes people have coughs. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to talk about Miike's obsession with the deadly homosexual, right? Because Miike's movies get pretty gay. Um, <laughs> and it's always the bad guy who's gay, always. Whether it's Thirteen Assassins, Blade of the Immortal, uh, Rio in Part Two is basically the bad guy from uh, from Blade of the Immortal, right? Um, and there's even a line with the what was the name of the the leader of Hausen in Part Two? Can't remember. Um. I can't guy remember. Who looks like, uh, but he looked. Freddy Rodriguez. He had the hairstyle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the guy who looks like Freddy Rodriguez. Um, he he basically he's talking about like men and how beautiful men fighting are and what it's like to be a real man. 
and <laughs> the this guy, this kid, this freshman's sort of looking at him, and there's just like a line that's never elaborated on where he just says, "I'm not a homo," and then he just keeps talking. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah. So it's like in part in Crow Zero too. It got the homosexual overtones got so overt that there's just a throwaway line where he's like, "I'm not a homo," and then they keep it they keep it moving. But he is 100 percent like the bad the bad oh, yeah, guys in this absolutely. movie are gay. I mean, look at how they dress. Yeah, yeah. That was another thing too. The way the way that Housen dresses in these kind of gray, they're gray, and a lot of them are bald. Um, they kind of look like characters from THX 1138. Um, and I think that there might have been criticism of Crow Zero Part 1 about that last fight and not being able to tell the two sides apart. So they're like, okay, we're going to put these guys in uniforms and we're going to have the last fight during the day so you can, you know, kind of see everything. But I don't think that was the right decision, you know? I, I, I liked that chaos. I liked not knowing where it was. I liked everything becoming this uh, smear of punching and kicking bodies. That was the appeal. That was the meditative appeal of the Crow Zero movies. To me. Yeah, that fighting like was so realistic. Mm-hmm. The style. I was like, this is how people fight. Like you know, even though they throw like ridiculous punches sometimes, mm-hmm. and it's uh, like indecipherable what how hard some of them yeah. hit. Because they'll like break a character's face, and then all of us they'll be hitting their stomach, and the character doesn't flinch. So it's like whatever. Yeah, there's no rules. Um, there's no rules here. Yeah, their power levels change; they go up and down. But the way that they fight, I was like, God damn! Yeah, this is a brawl. This is how you fight out in the street. You just start swinging punches, kicking at people, grabbing. There's a whole lot of grabbing. This might be the most grabby. A fight series I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of grabbing, lots of throwing into stuff, headbutting, um, but there are still rules. In the third movie, when the I guess the antagonist you could call him. Every every movie in Crow's every Crow's movie has a subplot about somebody who is old. They've graduated, and they're washed up, and they're trying to figure out what to do with their life. Right. So that character in part three kicks someone in the nuts, and that scene is a great dishonor in the in the he throws sand kicks nuts lights people on fire and that's what makes him the bad guy right but um that whole idea of an older person being out of school and and like still hanging out around the school because their best days were in that school is uh very prominent in the first movie it's ken obviously right who Uh and then in the second movie it's uh the guy who gets out of jail for stabbing somebody and uh, I thought that that subplot existed purely so that he could go to that fishing village where Ken was working, because uh, there's some beautiful shots of this rural fishing village in Japan. And then in the third movie, it's the the janitor guy. But every movie has that, right? And it's completely uh, tangential to the main. Well, not in the first movie. In the second and the third movies, it's tangential. It doesn't have any effect on the main on the main plot. Um, but I thought that was interesting, you know. I thought that, that you know this idea, this metaphor of high school as a as a lawless struggle for an imposition of a kind of hierarchy, and then these people get kicked out into the real world where there's real hierarchies, and it doesn't matter how badass you were at Suzeron, you're working at a used car dealership, or you're working in a fishing village, or you become a yakuza, yeah. you become an errand boy, you know. There's a there's a there's a there's a, there's a big melancholy feeling 
to this about, about the what this movie's saying is like a lot of these guys are are fucking losers at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's what you know. Uh, that's what Rinda Man is trying to tell them all. When Genji keeps going at him, he's like, "Why do you want this? Mm-hmm. If you beat me, you've got nothing left." He, he tells him, uh, "You have to start all over." It's like after this, say you, say you beat me, say you dominate the school, then there's real life, cause, and like, that shit's gonna be an even harder fight. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He's the he's this sort of mystic character who's dropping truth bombs on everybody. And like we said, you know, just standing in the way. The movies, uh, all three movies end with the protagonist attempting to beat up Rinda Man. And just, you know, it usually ends with a punch, but considering how the movies have started, we always know that they never are able to beat them. Genji in the first, and I think second movie, he just keeps trying. There's so many scenes of him, like, (laughs) just showing up. And it actually ends on a somewhat melancholy note at the end of the second movie because Rinda Man's like, so this is the last time we're going to do this, huh? And he's like, yeah, I guess so. It's like, but I'm not going to hold back. But yeah, no, the idea of, uh, of these kind of loser characters is interesting. There's the uh, Masuke who has a big scar on his face and fucked up teeth and he just wants to get laid. But there's a running joke through the first two movies that he keeps coming in his pants when he even looks at a woman, uh, which is genuinely funny. Uh, I, th- I thought that was hilarious. The He even thinks about it. He buys those condoms mm-hmm. that are like banana flavored. Yeah. And uh, they're also in a cartoonishly tiny package, which I thought was a... Yeah. Like yeah. sort of self, uh, a sort of self-aggrandizing stereotypical joke, right. but yeah, he just he buys the uh, condoms, and he's like, oh, oh, <laughs> and then he's like, I held it in yeah, exactly because in the first in the first movie he uh, he basically uh, they take the the way that they get Masuke to uh, be part of their group is they try to hook him up with these chicks and. Uh, you know the day night he's just he's just immediately in a flop sweat and he's just rapey right he's, he's trying to like crawl onto this woman and uh then he ends up busting in his pants and they have to go buy him old lady pants to wear and uh we were talking before we started recording about how crow zero uh the series is actually we it's kind of a children's movie in a way so i was watching it with gus and he likes the cars and motorcycles so whenever those would be on, he'd watch. But he would also be watching the... Um, oh, he's awake, but I'm, I'm just going to... Sometimes if I just let him be, he'll fall back asleep. So let me just keep an eye on him to make sure he doesn't fall out of the bed. Oh, no, he's, he's awake. Oh, there hey, he goes. Hey, buddy. We got to get some... Uh... Hey, buddy. Hey, it's okay. Good morning. Good morning. Agitator is for the kids. It's for the kids. And so are these movies, uh, except for, like, the coming in the pants part. But, like, kids wouldn't even get that. They wouldn't even understand, like, what was going on. But this movie is without any, like, uh, besides that, like, any kind of pervy Mika-isms, really. And, you know, even though everybody who plays a high schooler in in this movie is clearly 37 years old, um, (laughs) it's kind of, like, I don't know. It's kind of fun. There's a little bit of blood, but no, what? not very many people get killed if people get killed it's like a big deal it's like not more violent than indiana jones right uh movies that i watched growing up yeah yeah it's really not by the end of one of the movies i can't remember 
because uh, you just, you know, have been watching them all. But I was thinking, this is what Karate Kid wishes it was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just like a fun trilogy of cartoons that, I don't know. Yeah, it's just it's just wild. And it started making me, there were certain parts of this movie where I thought, this is like a whole season of TV packed into a two-hour movie. And yeah. but what's interesting is that, you know, with TV, everything gets so fleshed out right with with all these characters that you forget the joy of watching a movie that has an entire universe that the creators know that you only find out through hints right that's what made star wars cool before the ip exploded and we got a dozen tv shows and video games and uh reboots and you know whatever else it was it was like the first three movies there are all these places that the characters go that have history and, uh, you know, ca- characters that have backstory. And it was cool at first, you know, I would buy the books as a kid, you know, Tales from Mos Eisley, and, you know, you'd find the backstory of the of the dancer that gets eaten by the rancor and stuff, and, and that was all neat. <laughs> but, like, it was kind of cooler when it was just this thing, like, you didn't know what the fuck these things were or why they were there. Yeah, yeah, there's a certain mystery and there's a certain... It gives you... It gives your own imagination uh, more room to explore, to be like, what's the deal with Boba Fett? Mm-hmm. You know, what's going on? Which Boba Fett becomes so much less cool once you know shit about him. You're like, oh. Bro, so much less You're like, cool. Oh, never mind. Like, I, don't, I don't care anymore. Yeah, I thought I always wanted a Boba Fett like, spinoff movie. Mm-hmm. And then several episodes of The Mandalorian, I was like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care, yeah. He looks cool, but, you know just don't care anymore so anyway any other thoughts on the crow zero series before we we talked about three movies in an hour and 10 minutes and the first 25 minutes was us uh debating immigration so (laughs) we get we get down to business here brass tags I, i think the whole theme of the movie is sort of wrapped up in uh i think there is a fight between fujiwara which is the outsider, you know, the outgrown character of the third one who get comes back from prison and um, one of the badasses from the school. And, uh, you know, the badass from the school is talking about, I'm going to beat your ass and this and that. And he's like, so what? Right. He's like, and I think that is sort of the main theme of all of these movies. Mm-hmm. Like, so what? What are you fighting for? Or is the fighting your whole purpose? Yeah, that's interesting. And that's a metaphor for high school in general. It's a, it's a good lesson for kids who are in high school who care about, oh, I got a bad grade or, you know, so such and such girl doesn't like me or, you know, I got, uh, I don't know, like raped in the locker room or something like that. It's, it doesn't matter. You'll, you'll get over all of it. <laughs> <laughs> all, yeah all of it because then life will just continue to rape you after exactly that. exactly um oh we we did talk uh the other day about like in the middle of this about the translation oh the translation was dog on shit on part three it was and they kept terrible. putting their fucking twitter handle and they're like go follow me i, I want to follow that i want to tag them in this episode and be like, hey, your subtitles are dog shit. I don't care if you know how to speak Japanese and I don't. So what? Big deal. I can learn. I could learn Japanese in two weeks if I put my mind to it. In fact, I will. 
they but like these i i stopped i, I, I stopped i stopped to. looking at them i stopped looking at the subtitles because i was like this is insane it's really bad it's like does is always doesn't and it, they'll walk <laughs> it is funny whenever you have a character that's like you know what they're saying is more along the lines of what's going on or is everything okay and what what the subtitle says is what it do yeah what it do and there's like <laughs> when is what happened it's like what the fuck are you talking about right and then there's a lot of japanese isms that uh are attempted to be translated literally and they just end up sounding like really strange you know because they'll be like what is what oh, is what like is water a... but for but for heart of the mountain you're like what the what's the, like this is a this is an idiom this is an idiomatic expression like you got to tell us what that means yeah they'll be like you're oh you're like a bee no you're like a bee you bastard no 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 he says what he says fuck? you're like a bee and then he says uh you're like a grasshopper the fuck like what <laughs> and yeah the bastard thing is all over the place yeah, bastard in these movies like seven times out of ten means no. Yeah, exactly. The rest of the times, it, he's probably calling him a bitch or something. Not a yeah. Yeah, that would be a much better translation. I want Crow Zero with N words. Still a kids movie. Still a kids movie. Because um, kids. Bro, kids say N words all, all the, the time. time. <laughs> they don't. They don't care. They haven't. They just know that they're not supposed to say it. So I hear the little badass kids that run around my neighborhood and try to steal my packages. Like some of them are black and some of them are white, and they all just scream everything. It's a it's a beautiful time, to, you know, being a child. Before before you yeah, realize that child. words actually have magical power that can kill people if you say them, kill them. Yeah, yeah. It's three crazy. people have died They'll listening. Yeah, three people have died listening to this podcast and hearing you say the N word. Man, it's a good thing we bleeped them out a few episodes yeah. ago, or we'd be like genocidal maniacs. Right and, well, the thing is, is uh, yeah, I guess the bleeps are gone. It was in the Tokyo Gore Police when I was like, okay, you edit it. So I just always assume, you know, I guess Kelby's fine with it. <laughs> yeah. If he doesn't care, I See, don't care. Words have no power. No. <laughs> um, I'm getting more into Zen Buddhism, and uh, actually, words don't mean shit. Yeah, words are meaningless and forgettable, according to Um, which I agree. What are you doing, big boy? What are you doing? He always wakes up from his nap with a stuffy nose. I probably need to sweep under the bed, but there's like mad dog hair down there. But he always wakes up and he's like, <laughs> and then it clears up after like 10 minutes. Right now he's, dude, this shit is so cute. He started doing this. He takes his hands and he puts them on either side of my face turns my face to his and then just stares at me and it's like the the angle of like an up close baby face is so funny that i don't know just gets me every time yeah no i know what you mean there was a another funny translation thing that was actually super racist was in i think the third one renda man is called linda man and I was like, Ooh. yeah, the R's and the L's are weird because we, you know, grew up with English, so R and L sounds completely different. But I guess if you say them, it's the same part of the mouth that you say them in. And uh, I guess especially in, uh, there's a lot of funny stuff in like China when Americans try to speak Chinese because we don't get all the intonations right, so we say funny stuff wrong 
but the uh, the R's and L's is just like a classic. When when Rios will be listening to uh, K-pop or whatever, and they'll do their chorus in English, and they'll be talking about love, but it's rub. <laughs> Dude, I, I chuckle. I chuckle every time. It's funny. Every time. <laughs> yeah, that's endlessly funny. They balance out the racism though by having an actual black character instead of. Uh, they do. Yeah, and he was good, man. He was a, he had a, that physicality that I was talking about. And I was thinking when I was watching that last fight scene in, in part three, uh, it cut from the black kid fighting people, and you know he's putting his whole body into it, right? Even when he gets hit, you can see his cheek, like his cheeks jiggle. You know, I just said cheeks jiggle. That shit was gay. <laughs> his cheeks, his cheeks jiggle. You watching this? Watching this kid's cheeks jiggle. <laughs> You watch his cheeks jiggle. That's so funny. Uh, and then you cut to the main character, and his cheeks aren't jiggling at all. It's really, really upsetting. Yeah, yeah. More, more physicality and fighting. Movies. Yeah. I want that. More than that, I want to fight. Yeah, fight. This movie's make me want to fight. Again. Yeah, we should. You should fight. You should go to a gym and start boxing. I should just go. There's a bunch of people hanging out around. Uh, taco truck mm-hmm. should just be like what's up just, who's, the, who's the strongest of yeah be like I'm the fucking king of this taco truck bitch <laughs> and then out out of this little taco truck he's just gonna step this seven foot tall Mexican and like cowboy dude there are no seven feet Mexican Captain Heavy not sure it's a, you'll find a big you'll, you'll find a big foot before you find a seven foot Mexican he's the miserable Mexicans are like, hey, you know, I once met a guy. He was like super tall, bro. He was fucking, he was like 5'10. <laughs> <laughs> Without shoes on. <laughs> Alright, everybody. Thank you for listening and uh, keep it, keep it real. Keep it real. <laughs>